Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is December 3rd, 2012, and it's Monday. Uh, and this is episode 1032 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, as is typical on a Monday, we're going to do a listener feedback show. This is all email that I've received at jack at com. Again, my email address, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. It is not a special email address that goes to some staff or anything. It is my email. I use it every day. If you want to get in touch with me, it's the best way to do so. You want to do it for a show like this, then there's a format that you'll follow that will make it most likely that you'll get on the show. I'm going to give that to you right now. Play, please, please, please pay attention. It is for your benefit. I promise you, you're more likely to get on the air uh, with your question, comment, or idea. If you do it this way, number one, send it to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Do not send it through Facebook or the forum or Twitter or something like that. Trust me, this is the best way. Number two, in your subject, put something like article for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, article for Jack, video for Jack. Get it? Whatever it is for Jack. Three words, do that. You'll go into the queue where you'll get priority for screening for the show. Okay, that's the best thing to do there. The next thing, keep it short, especially the top part when it's a question. If you have a question about how to do something, say, my question is, doom, 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 doom. Get it done in two sentences or less. You want to give me details? Write your book after your question. If you write your book and bury your question in it, I will not read it all. I do not have the time. It's not that I don't care. It's that going through between two and 400 emails a day makes it impossible for me to spend that amount of time. If you want to catch my attention, Get it up front, get it in one or two sentences, and you're likely to get on the air. All right, before we go ahead and take your questions, comments, etc. that came in this week, and there's some great ones this week, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. Sponsor of the day number one today, Western Botanicals. Hey, I thought we, we had lost Western Botanicals. There's been some changes in the staff over there. We had some miscommunications. Some of my requests went unanswered. I figured they didn't want to keep being a sponsor, but uh, the owner got in, in touch with me. And he, uh, in fact, wants to remain a sponsor. They're continuing to support the MSB. And I'm very happy to have Western Botanicals re remain as a sponsor. And, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, I really want to have a place that I can send you for herbal supplements and things like that. I really do. And I trust most of the companies in that industry about as far as I could throw their CEO tied to their COO uh, with a chain with a giant weight on it. I, it's just an industry that's rife. With false claims and, 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 you know, all kinds of sensationalism and everybody sucks except me. Western Botanicals is not that all, at all. They are the best stuff I've found. Absolutely whatever you're looking for, you're going to find there. A staff that'll help you pick up the phone and call them and they'll do that. Uh, they'll help you figure out exactly what you need. And everything that you're going to get from them is either organically grown or wild crafted. So you know you're going to get high quality stuff with no toxins in it. And you're going to get what you need for your individual needs. And they'll say, you know, this can help with this, but this might be something you really need to go see your doctor about. Or they might say, you know, it's going to take more than just this supplement if you're having these problems. We need to kind of work on that together and bring your traditional medical professional in with you on this decision. What are you eating? Things like that. So they're not going to say, hey, just buy this and you'll be able to cure cancer, cure diabetes, and run a thousand miles an hour. They don't do stuff like that. 
Real people that can really help you with the best supplements that you'll find in the herbology world. Check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. I've been a reader of Backwoods Home since the early 90s, I guess. Right after I got out of the military, as soon as I actually had a job and was able to have something called discretionary income, I think the first magazine that I subscribed to uh, after that was Backwoods Home Magazine. I probably found them on one of my... Uh, trips to the bookstore where I was reading things without buying anything back when I was broke and maybe I'd buy a coffee so I didn't feel bad about it uh, instead of using them just like a library. That's how long I've been a reader. I'm still a reader. I'm still a subscriber. There's a reason, and you should be too. If you really want a magazine that's going to help you learn more about self-sufficiency and self-reliance and libertarian thinking, Backwoods Home is the way to go. Check them out today, backwoodshome.com. Best way to find Western Botanicals, Backwoods Home, and all of our sponsors. Go to the survivalpodcast.com first. Click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Next up, remember, it's going to be Christmas soon. We have some cool stuff for you at tspcopper.com, tspcopper.com, and tspgear.com. That's all I'll say about this today. Uh, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You help support the show at 18.3 cents an episode. The lifetime membership thing is closed. It's gone. It's not coming back for a long time. Um, if you email me and ask me if you can get in now, I'm going to say no. So we have the regular membership now, 50 bucks a year, uh, or you can join monthly. You can join every six months. It's up to you. And if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, active duty or prior service or a first responder, like let's say paramedics, I will give you a discount to thank you for your service. Just email me with service discount in the subject line. Tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did, and I will get your discount code and instructions for you on how to use it. Please do that before you join, not after you join. If you're already a member, you didn't get the discount, you want the discount, you qualify, we need to look at doing that right about the time you're ready for renewal. And uh, get in touch with me, I'll help you do that. All right, so I've got everything wrapped up now, ready to go. Uh, and get into your feedback, but I've got a big announcement first and some things I want to clear up about it, and this is a really cool thing. I put this out on Friday afternoon. Many of you guys don't read the blog and all, though you only listen to the show or you only go by the blog during the week or what have you uh, after a show and something piques your interest. So I know I'm going to reach a lot of people with this that I didn't reach over the weekend, and the the the, uh, the response has already been amazing. And that is 13skills.com is live, home of the 13 and 13 challenge. Uh, for those who might be new listeners, I came up with this idea about two months ago. We've gone in two months from an idea to a reality in an active site that's growing and building right now. The concept is this. You decide on 13 skills that you want to obtain or dramatically improve in some way in 2013. You go through, you select those skills from a list of skills, you define goals for yourself within them, you track your progress, and when you've completed it, you check it off as completed. So far it's going great, but there's a few things that I want to cover. Number one, understand I have one developer doing this. It's not the only thing he does. He does development for a living. He has other clients, and I can only afford to pay him so much. So making improvements from here will take time and we'll have to prioritize them. But there's a few little things that we're trying to sort out right away that are easy things to get done. Right now, one of the things that I've, I've, I've tasked our developer with doing, and I think you'll get done this week, is on your profile page where it says all your skills and your goals and everything like that, um, there, I, we, I don't know why we didn't do this, but we don't have an about me section. So a lot of guys are going, well, I already know how to do this, 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 and this, and I'm willing to help other people with it. And that's great. And, and we want you to want people helping each other and guiding each other and everything like that. 
So in the About Me section, you'll be able to throw in like a link to your website and, and things like that. But right now, you can already put all your social media. So if people want to get in touch with you, if you have a forum profile, a Twitter account, a Facebook account, a YouTube account, there's ways that people can get in touch with you. And under each skill, you define your goal. And if you are tracking your goal like in your blog... So what you could do, for instance, let's say that you were going to do something with rabbits and you had your skill and your goals there. Well, then you could maybe create a tag in your blog called Rabbits 2013 and then link to that tag section of your blog under there. So you can already track what you're doing. But for people to say, I already know how to do certain things, I'm willing to help, that can go in the About Me section. We'll try to get that done this week. All right. But I want to kind of speak to the spirit of what's going on here. Helping each other, great. Building community, great. You know I'm all about that. But the Spirit is not telling everybody, look what I can do. All right? It's not, look, I already know all this stuff. It's, I'm going to challenge myself to go to a higher level. And I've gotten some emails from people that you just go, really, dude? Really? You're that full of it? One guy emailed me and said, I already have all of the 105 skills you've listed. First of all, no, you don't. First of all, I don't believe anybody, including me, has all of the skills. And the skills list has grown closer to 150 to 200 as we've approved skills. More on that in a second. All right, But let's say that one of the skills was firearms, modern firearms skills. Okay, And, and the person said, well, I'm a competition shooter. I've won national championships in three-gun competitions. So I've got rifle, i got shotgun, i got pistol, and I'm among the best in the world. And they weren't full of crap. Really? You ever uh, shoot a black powder weapon? Have you been to an apple seed shoot and qualified as a rifleman? Have you taken classes on thousand yard shooting? Uh, you know, since it's firearms, have you learned to, to build from scratch an AR-15? And if the answer to all of those was yes, I guarantee you if I keep going, there's some skill set in firearms that that individual hasn't mastered yet. So understand that it's not just about ticking boxes and go, I know how to use a gun, I know how to can, I know how to garden. If you're gardening skill set or permaculture skill set, there's hundreds of goals that can be set that bring down to individual skills within them. So try to stay in the spirit of not telling everybody what you already know how to do, but saying, this is where I'm at. Here's what I need to do to get better, either by adding complete new skill sets that I know nothing about or stretching myself in these existing things that I'm interested in to go further. That's what this is about. It's not, it's not like, what was the guy from Mad TV, Stewart? Look what I can do. It's, that's not it. It's look what I'm going to force myself to do. You know, I'm already a black belt in martial arts. Really take another discipline. Maybe it's to learn a completely different format, like going from a hard style like Taekwondo and learning Tai Chi. So get that. Uh, next thing, on the skills. Please understand we have tons of people requesting that we add skills to the skills list. We only want the skills list to be so long. So, for instance, we've had people saying things like they want to add winter camping, lightweight camping, primitive camping. Folks, all that goes under camping. And you set your goals. So the goal under camping could be to develop and improve my winter camping skills by accomplishing the following things in 2013. Acquiring additional equipment, learning how to use it, actually testing my skills, whatever it is. And understand your goal is your own goal. But let's try to keep, so just because you've submitted a skill and it hasn't been approved, please look through the list and see if anything on that list would be an umbrella that your goal would fit under because we can't have 400,000 skills. So we had one person, for instance, say they submitted the skill request, and I'm not picking on you, 
passing a skill to a friend. And you know what we said? That is a terrible way to list a skill because it's, it's, it's four words. And if it needs to be four words, it's too broad. But it actually is a description of a great skill that we left out of the original list. Teaching. We put teaching in there. So anything that would fit under teaching and any goals that you set under teaching can go under teaching if that makes sense. We've also had people say things like making a pair of pants from scratch. That would go under sewing or maybe tailoring. You got it? So I'm not picking on anybody. I'm just saying that like to keep the thing in boundaries, we have to do that. The next thing is I see a lot of people putting up a skill and saying completed. I'm not calling anybody a fibber or anything. And I did two months ago say don't wait. But again, this is not look what I can do. So if you have a skill set in ham radio, in the spirit of the challenge, instead of marking it complete, set a goal you haven't achieved yet, right? And this is the 13 and 13 challenge. We're still in 2012. We went early with the launch. It helps us sort the site out, you know, but stretch yourself. I mean, that's, that's the big thing is here. Stretch yourself. For instance, one of my skill sets is black powder shooting, okay? And you give me a black powder flintlock rifle or a black powder percussion rifle, and I can use it. I've taken game with both. Uh, I know everything about cleaning it, etc. But I still have a black powder shooting goal. It's, a it's around revolver shooting, black powder revolver shooting. I've never owned one. So I'm getting one this year. I'm going to learn how to load it. I'm going to learn how to clean it. I'm going to learn how to shoot it. I'm going to learn how to cast lead balls for it. I'm going to learn how to swap the cylinders out because I'm going to go with the new army and, and increase and set a goal for how quickly I can take three loaded cylinders and go and from each one to the next and get off, you know, the full complement of shots with the preloaded cylinders. And I might even add to that something like I might go on an exotic ram hunt in Texas because they're affordable and take an exotic ram with black powder handgun because they're not the, the, the wariest animals on planet earth. It would be a reasonable goal that I know I could accomplish, and it would force me to use the skills that I've developed. That's a pretty long-term way to address that one skill. It's not just I'll buy it from Cabela's, I'll load it up, I'll go out back and shoot it a couple times, clean it, put it away, and say, done. If you want to do that, that's okay. That's completely okay. I'm just saying that it makes sense to try to stretch yourself a little bit. That's what the site's all about. So a person that's never canned, Their goal might be acquire a pressure canner and, and pressure can my first batch of stuff. And that's probably enough for the person that's never canned before. But a person that's canned before, maybe it's a person that's always done water bath canning that wants to go to pressure canning. And maybe it's acquire the equipment and learn five recipes and, and do five batches of things that have to be pressure canned this year. You know, um, It's whatever you want it to be. But please try, don't try to make it, oh, I, I set the goal and I accomplished it in five minutes. If you can accomplish your goal completely and fully in a day, you're, you're, you have 365 days to knock out 13 new skills minimum. And some of you guys are sitting like 20 and 30. I think that's great. But on 13, with 365 days to get it done, because you don't really have to start till January 1st, if you can do it in a day, you're not stretching yourself enough uh, it, to, to really develop yourself as a teacher or a gardener or a hunter or a primitive skills. So I wanted to kind of cover that in depth. 
And I'll tell you what's going to be coming over the next couple of weeks. I'm going to go into the site, and I'm going to figure out all the places people are having hangups. And in the help section, there'll be little screen capture videos, exactly how how do you find your forum ID versus your forum username, to put that in there. Uh, how do you edit your About Me section once we have it up, etc. How do you link to where you're documenting your skills without having all your links go to the same place? Why would you do that? How you would find other members. All this stuff uh, will improve the features as we can, And I'll give you the tools you need to use what we have to their maximum. But if you haven't done so yet, please get over to the site. Again, it's 13skills.com, 13skills.com. Click on Take the Challenge, set up your profile. If you don't see skills you want, pick some of them that you do want. Define your goals, suggest skills, but understand this. This is a one big hole in what we have right now. If you suggested a skill, like let's say... Um, I don't know, building a solar backup system. And we say, well, we already have alternative energy. So that would go under alternative energy. We don't know you've submitted the skill. We have, we did not build that into the system. We, that's an upgrade. And it might be a, I don't know yet. That might be a significant time and cost upgrade where we could reply to you and say, Hey, Tom, thanks for asking us to add this. But it would fit under. So if you're kind of, you got to kind of take an initiative here. If you don't see your skill approved in the first, I'd say, 12 hours, it probably ain't going to happen. And that means you need to look for something because we've either already decided it's there or we add something more encompassing. The next thing, again, if you're going to suggest a skill and it takes you more than two words, really think about it. If it takes you more than three, it ain't going to happen. I promise you there's something there. Or you can help us by being more concise and more inclusive. We want the fewest number of top skills possible because almost everything you want to do can fit under a, a relatively maybe 250 master skills list, right? So if you put carpentry in there, then building anything from a shed to a house to a bookshelf can go under carpentry, if that makes sense. And that helps you sharpen your skills. And somebody in carpentry might have to take a carpenter's course, get work as an apprentice framer. Any You can put any of that stuff you want under the, the top-level skills. All right, again, 13skills.com. Please join today. Uh, we have had over 500 people join in the first 48 hours. We're pretty psyched about that. But I'd like to see it be a couple thousand by the end of the week. So um, let's get to the first email, uh, though there were tons of emails about 13 skills and asking us to improve things. And I know I'm going on about this, but it's a big initiative, right? So another thing I want you to understand is when you email skillsgirl at 13, skillgirl at 13skills.com on the feedback area for 13 skills, your email goes to my wife, Dorothy, who is skillgirl, and she's going to do what she can to help you out. It goes to me, and I'm going to kind of look at it and filter. It also goes to our developer, David. And he is going to be answering more of the technical questions. And sometimes the, the answers we'd like to do that we can't right now. Um, but there, everything you send us is being taken into consideration. Some's going into the I can help this person now file and we're getting help. Some's going into you've been heard. We'd like to do that, but we can't right now, but we'll put it on the list file. And some's going into that's easy. We can do it right now. We'll take care of it the next day. I uh, just wanted to be clear on that. So getting into our first actual feedback email, this comes from Chris. Chris says, I own a small farm in Illinois, and I'm surrounded by family, including my folks. My son and I made an A-frame to help make mark a level line on one of our hills. As a learning exercise, we marked a level line where we could cut a swale. 
The line was just at the break point of the hill behind our house where the flat top begins to turn down. My father stopped by and asked why we would cut a swale so high on the hill as in his opinion it would never fill. Uh, I want to hold water as high as possible. The top of the hill is the highest point. I could direct roof water there to fill it. I wouldn't. I'll tell you why in a second. Next, he questioned the reasoning behind building swells in a place where we normally receive 36 inches of rainfall. We get large amounts of rains at once. I want to meter it in the landscape over time. That's absolutely what you should be doing. Finally, he suggested that swales may not be appropriate for our small river hills as they are at most 30 feet high. Height and slope are factors I consider in design in the hill. The cows and future generations of children's sleds will thank me for doing this. Uh, we drew pictures in a dirt-based diagrams. I learned from Lawton, uh, Hemingway, Mullison, etc. But he stood his ground about 36 inches of rainfall, preventing the necessity of a swell, and laughed at the notion of becoming drought-proof. Hmm. At some point, you might tip your hat and go about your business, but I'd like to bring him along for the ride. Do you have any advice on what I could say to him? Suggested reading material. Can you point to water catchments on low hills where rain is measured in yards instead of inches? The next decision is what to use to cut the swell. Rent a small excavator or use my two bottom plow harrow and blade. Uh, you'd use a harrow and blade maybe to do key line plowing, which might be, in, depending on what your goals are, a better option for you to key line plow uh, than to swale. But I'm going to answer the question from a swaling perspective since that's how it was asked. For those that don't know, a swale is a ditch on contour. That means I have a ditch generally in a large-scale system. That ditch is going to be about two yards wide, one yard deep. Dirt comes out of the swale, goes to the downhill side, is uncompacted. I can now plant trees, bushes, shrubs, vines, basically forest systems into that swale berm and continue to plant down from it, and eventually I can put in another swale. All right, so that's the basics of swales as much as I'm going to go today. Um, as far as this guy's father saying, well, there's no need for it, it doesn't work, I don't mean it to be disrespectful here. But my first question to anybody who tells me something won't work or it doesn't need to be done or this is laughable or, you know, blah, blah, whatever it is, have you ever done this before? If the answer is no, I'm going to stick with the people who've done it before. That may not be the way to phrase it to your dad, but that's reality. Okay, so you've been reading the works of people like Mollison, Lawton, uh, Toby Hemingway, people that have done this stuff over and over and over again successfully, and along comes dad or brother-in-law or whoever, expert farmer down the road who's never done it before, doesn't understand the goal, doesn't understand the principle, and says, don't need it, it doesn't work. Um... At some point, yeah, you got to tip your hat, like you said, and, and go on. But bring them along for the ride. Let's start out with some basic calculations. He's saying, hey, there's not enough room to fill this swale up. All right, so you get 36 inches of rain. All right, so let's say that you have from the top of your hill down to where you cut your first swale 50 feet. That's not much. And by the way, where you're talking about where the kind of the slope of the hill turns from from coming down to turning into like a little concave is called a key point. And I don't know if that's what you're really talking about here or not, or you're actually talking about the very top of the hill. You don't want to be at the very top of the hill. But you want to be up as high as possible to make a reasonable amount of catchment. Now, let's say that's 50 feet. You have 50 feet of slope down to your swale, and then you have 2 yards or 6 feet of swale. All right, so let's do some math there. First, we take your 50 feet of catchment. That's, that matches your swale line, and we say that we take 50 feet times your 36 inches, we get 1,800 inches per foot of rain in your 36-inch rainfall 
uh, annual uh, catchment. So that means we're catching 1,800 feet inches. You got it? So per linear foot, in that linear foot, you're catching 1,800 inches during the entire year, which is real simple, 36 times 50. All right? Now we take that and we divide that by the three feet that makes up your swale and we get 600 inches of rainfall. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got that wrong. It's, it's six feet of swale. And we get 300 inches per foot of your swale. Your swale is about a yard deep or 36 inches, right? So in that rough composition, you would collect enough rainfall with only 50-foot upgrade catchment to fill the swale 8.3 times per year in total volume. Now, as you come down the slope, your swale is not the bottom of your swale's level, but the top of the back and the top of the front's not. And if you look at my videos where you draw the level line of water across it, you actually can't fill it up a full yard deep. It just doesn't work because eventually, as you come back in the slope, the level line takes off, goes to your sill, and overflows. So since that's the case, you could fill it more than eight times. Now, if you give yourself a hundred foot of catchment coming down the hill, imagine how many times you can fill it there. But if you put it up high and you only give yourself 50 feet, come down another couple hundred feet and put in another one, or even another hundred feet and put in another one, As you overflow the first one, you'll, you'll continue to charge the second one. And the more you do, the further you go down, the greater the overall effect. So you're right to start at the highest point. Plain and simple. And it's, it's just plain and simple your dad's wrong. Now, where could your dad be right? You want to put pasture in or you want to put a forest in? If you want to put a pasture in, you're better off terracing some of this stuff. As far as the kids riding sleds down it, Um, you need to leave a place where there's no swales for them so they can do that if you want to do that. you got to have some openings where you can have like a sled run or something like that. But as far as animals, um, if you want a pasture, then a swale is going to give you a forest. And you would probably do better managing patch, pasture in terraces on contour than a swale on contour. Or if the slope's not that extreme, it may be that going in and doing key line plowing, which I'm not going to get into today, would be a more appropriate method. But if you want trees, bushes, vines, and things like that, if you want a forest that with a food, forage, and animal fodder forest, then swales are the way to go. The only time that you would not want a swale is where you have land downgrade from the swale that's already gets saturated and you need to improve drainage. So if you have something that's turning into a marsh, you have a couple choices. Clean it out, turn it into a lake, and swale the crap out of it, right? Or you need to increase its drainage and you need a different approach to what you're doing. Or if you're swelling up from it, you need to be directing your runoff out of different catchments which may or may not be allowable with you know local codes and things based on where you're at. But you got to look at the overall picture. But, it, but as far as will the swell do its job 50 feet down from the top of a hill... Oh, it'll, it, with 36 inches of rainfall, you bet your ass it'll do its job. Let me put it another way. You'd say, well, we could put this in in a place where they only get 10 inches of rainfall and give it 150 feet of catchment, and people would say that works. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. As far as laughing at whether or not it can be drought-proofed, folks, if you can do this in the Jordanian desert, you damn sure can do it in the Midwestern United States. 
Um, I would look at putting some ponds in with this. I don't know how many acres you have, but your basic concept is sound. But if you think you're going to keep it wide open pasture, I wouldn't go with the swale approach. Uh, I really wouldn't. Uh, let's take another one. Okay, this next one, I'm starting out with a disclaimer. I don't know if this damn thing does what it claims it will do. It's a posting on Craigslist sent to me by a listener. I'm going to put a link in today's show notes. But the headline is, and I'm going to have to describe it. You have to look at it to really get a feel for it. Grow your own livestock feed for 70 cents per day per head, which is pretty dadgone reasonable. That means if I'm going to do this with a horse, uh, and I'm going to do this on an average uh, month with 30 days, uh, I'm going to have a whopping $21 a month in feed costs. I just don't know if that's true. Um, because I don't know if one of these things is actually going to feed a horse for a day or a cow for a day the way it says it would. Let me read it, and then I'll describe what it is. You can grow feed for cows, bulls, horses, sheep, goats, llamas, or pigs on your ranch using our growing unit. It consists of a climately controlled growing environment where barley seeds, two pounds, are placed in a tray and the watering humidity, temperature, and lighting are automatically applied. The finished feed is 20 pounds of high nutrition, high protein, and moist live feed. One tray feeds one fully grown horse or cow for a day. It costs about 70 cents to produce one tray, and the price drops to 55 cents per day when the unit is paid off. All right, um, the next part says current hay costs probably around $4 or higher per animal per day. You'll realize very quick payoff under these dry times. Call Greg, and there's a phone number for a free analysis of your operation. This could solve or aid your current feed situations. Here's some concerns I have. One, I don't know if it's scalable down. I don't know how scalable this is down on a cost analysis basis to someone that has, let's say, one dairy cow and four or five goats. Uh, especially if someone has pasture and only would need this during certain times of the year. How long is the payback period? I don't know. And here's the big reason. It doesn't say how much it costs. I imagine they come in different sizes. Here's what it looks like. It looks like a big cabinet with a bunch of grow lights and automatic watering. You put your barley into some medium, you slide the tray in, it starts to grow. You do this over time, so your newest stuff's on the top, your oldest stuff's on the bottom. So you have stuff that's just planted on the bottom, stuff ready to pull out on the top. You pull out these trays, he says it's 20 pounds. I look at one, it's about the size of what you would typically see for sod grass. So a piece of sod grass uh, that you would lay down to sod a new lawn, it's about, those trays are about that size. Not exactly, but that's the closest thing I can give you that you can get in your head right now. It's growing up about a good foot. So these things are harvested, it looks like in the pictures, at about a foot. He has them in a front end loader where you take them out to your stock. Um, they show chickens eating it, they show cattle eating it, they show goats eating it, they show horses eating it. I have no doubt you could rapidly uh, sprout and grow barley uh, or, or wheat or other things like that, create feedstock, and I have no doubt this would logistically work. Um, when I look at one of these, and, and someone that maybe has a big better background in livestock, like horses and cows and stuff like that, could tell me, but my God, I've watched a horse eat this much, you know, uh, while talking to a buddy and leaning on a fence uh, in, in a couple minutes. I just don't see this as being enough to feed uh, a large ruminant for an entire day. Uh, as a supplement, as a way to kind of really give them some high-quality nutrition, yeah. As a ration during a lean time to, to hold them over and, and take some pressure off your pasture in a dry time, yeah. I just I, I think the claim 
and I might be wrong, but I just don't get it. I don't get, um, because they say it weighs 20 pounds, but how much of that's dirt or whatever, or growing medium? I, I don't know, because, again, I'm looking at it, it looks like about one foot by maybe two, two and a half feet uh, of, of grass a foot tall. And I've seen, you know, horses eat a hell of a lot more than that. So I don't know, but I like the concept, and it could be something that, you know, maybe you don't need this guy's system. This does not look hard to do. It's not far off Joel Salatin's thing about sprouting grains for chickens. Um, in fact, it might be an easy way to do sprouting grains for chickens and other small uh, poultry at a much easier scale than the large-scale system Joel Salatin was talking about. But you look at it today, you give me your thoughts on it. Those of you who have experience, because I am not a cattleman and I'm not a horseman. My, my horse skills are I go to places where horses are and ride them, right? And that's about it. I, I brushed a horse or two. That, I do not know about what it takes to keep a horse alive. All I know is what I've watched them eat. Now, is it that this stuff is such high-quality stuff? that I, I don't buy it. Um, but I want to hear from you, specifically those of you who have experience with these large ruminants, and you tell me how many squares of this, this high quality, and it's high quality, there's no doubt. It's green, it's rich, it was perfectly grown. You could grow it in the dead of winter because you could put this thing in a garage or something like that. I see it as being a massively useful thing, but does it do what they say it does? And if not, what do you think it does do? How much are one of these squares? Is you need you know ten of them to feed a horse for a day? Is it closer to what the guy's claiming? I don't know. I want to hear from you. Take a look at it and let me know. And let's go to another one. Hey, let's get off the uh, homesteading stuff for a while, at least in a way, and let's talk about a completely different issue, um, which is preparedness and how preparedness helps us with day to day living. Uh, and then, where well, do we have a hole in it, especially now? Here's the the question. Jack, my father-in-law was recently let go from his job with a regional bank. He was there for 26 years. He and his wife are not prepared for it. My wife has been worried about what her parents are going to do. She asked me the other day, what would we do if you lost your job? I explained that we would be fine and that our backup food, cash, and secondary income source would provide enough of a buffer that I would be able to find something else. She then asked about health insurance during the time between employers and the upcoming implementation of Obamacare. I really didn't know what to say. When, when, we, when we are required to have health insurance, how will job losses affect people and what will some ideas for the preparing uh, for the possibility? Okay, well, here's the reality. In most instances that I've seen, uh, the COBRA, which is how you continue your employer insurance um, when you lose your job while you're trying to find another one, is insane in its cost. It, it, to me, when I've looked at them, I look at it and go, this is three times what your employer was paying for the coverage. And I think it's despicable. And I don't think Obamacare did anything about it. And if it did, if it said that an employee must be covered with COBRA for the same cost that employee was covered with by the employer in perpetuity, and if the rates go up for the employer, they go up for the individual, fine, in perpetuity, but the money has to come from the individual, I would have a problem with it. Why shouldn't Aetna or Blue Cross Blue Shield or whatever sell me my policy that I already have for the same price they were selling it to, you know, whoever I work for? And I don't think it does that. So I don't think there's any help there. Um, I do think Obamacare, uh, well, I don't want anybody to think I support this, but if it's, if it's what we have, then you have to work with it, does make certain provisions that at the time it becomes enforced that you have to have it, uh, that there's certain ways to get it for lower cost. So the first thing would be to find the lowest cost way that you can cover yourself, at least bare bones, 
under the new system and, and pay for it the way you would anything with your emergency fund and with whatever unemployment benefits or whatever severance or whatever you would get. It's, it's just another expense. Um, I can tell you only what we do uh, as self-employed people, and it would be the model that I would suggest that you would have to go to during this period of time. We cover high deductible insurance so that um, we have to pay a lot out of pocket Uh, and we're only really covering ourselves for catastrophic loss. If one of us has to go to the doctor for something, we're going to end up paying for it. Uh, that includes prescriptions up to, I think our deductibles are about $7,000 a year apiece. It's relatively affordable, especially for myself at my age and being very, very healthy. A little more expensive for Dorothy because she's older than me. She's a woman. You guys pay more. Uh, and she's had you know some surgeries and things like that, so that all factors into the cost. But it keeps it somewhat affordable for us. Um, as far as the cost analysis, um, there's a point where you go, okay, so you're going to find me $1,500 bucks uh, in, in, on my taxes for not having insurance. Uh, and insurance is going to cost me eight grand, uh, and I don't have the money. Fine. Find me. I mean, so you got to make a choice based on all of the situational stuff on the ground. I do think what you're going to find, though, is people in this position, if there is any saving grace to Obamacare, are going to find that they're able to get insurance relatively affordably, maybe. I don't know. And here's the reality. We don't know jack diddly crap about what, the, what this is going to be like yet. Whether you're for it or against it, and I'm 100% against it, I still don't really know what it's going to look like when it's fully implemented, other than I know the eventual way it's going to look like is a complete flipping disaster. Because it's a complete flipping disaster everywhere it's been tried. And this might be the worst way it's ever been done. This might make what's done in England look like a really good way to run a healthcare system. That's how bad this might be. There's still so much money in it for the usual suspects that were already raping people and for the government uh, that it's, it, it's, it's insane that it's going to work. But as someone stuck in a system, you use the system to the best effect that you can while you're dealing with it. So I would say the first thing you got to do is you got to look for the low-cost option, however you can find it. And then you have to decide if the low-cost option outweighs, you know, the, the, the option of, of paying the fine and paying out of pocket for your health care and saying, if I get in that bad of shape, I'm going to the emergency room and they can't refuse care. The other option is in a two-employee family trying to make sure that you, you seek jobs where health care is provided on both sides so that if a husband loses his, you can go on to the wife's or the wife's on to the husband's. Even if there's a greater expense, it's going to cost less than going out in the open market and getting it. I have a solution to the health care crisis in America. Uh, I should say the health insurance crisis in America. I'm not going to go over it today because it ain't going to happen. But it sure as hell ain't mandates. It sure as hell ain't anything that we've been doing up till now. The basic short answer is everybody's health insurance looks like ours. It's high deductible, low cost. And you push that across, every, and, and mine goes down, everybody goes down, because they're only insuring the catastrophic loss. And when you go see a doctor because you have a runny freaking nose and you need freaking uh, an antihistamine or some shit like that, you pay for it. You, you pay for the man's time. And if it's not important enough to pay for that visit, you don't need to go. And I think that if we did that, we'd get a very efficient healthcare system where doctors were put back in charge of making decisions again, but... It ain't going to happen. We're in a disaster, and we're all going to have to deal with it as we see fit. The best thing that we can do is stay as healthy as possible.
So we need it as little as possible. And this is something I'm going to say. You have to consult with your doctor about this. But do everything you can do to stay off maintenance medications. If a doctor wants to put you on a medication, the first question is, how long am I going to be taking this? And what is the plan to get me off it? If the answer is forever, man, you know, ask them if there's anything you can do first. Find another doctor. Get another opinion. I think that most of the health conditions in our elderly are caused by long-term maintenance medication. Right? There's a point where we all fall over and die. And we, in some level, I'm not talking about eugenics. I'm not talking about the way the death panels. But I'm saying we all need to accept that there's a point where we're done. And a lot of times what we do that we think is going to prolong that date just makes the date sooner or maybe a little bit further, but makes the quality of life at the end miserable. I mean, I hope I live to a ripe old age and I think tomorrow's going to be a great day and I go to sleep and I don't wake up. That's the way I want to go out. It probably won't happen that way, but that would be the best way to go. And I think that everything that we are doing today with you know these old people on 15 different medications... We're making that almost impossible, not just improbable, of just living a ripe old life and one day laying down and dying. I mean, we're human beings. We're not immortal. We're not going to be. That's part of this. The bigger lesson here, this, this gentleman's father-in-law has that problem and all the other problems that go with it. And so your answer to your wife, sir, is that's the biggest problem we'll have. And as it's the biggest problem we'll have, we'll be able to figure something out because all of these other problems we've already compensated for. So don't think, see, this is the problem. A lot of times when people are resistant to prepping, they, well, if I can find one thing that you can't fix that it's not worth doing. Well, your father-in-law has to worry about paying his mortgage, paying his credit card debt, putting food on the table, keeping a roof overhead, keeping the lights on. All you got to worry about is health insurance. And he has to worry about that too. So that is one of the ways you really have to look at things like that. Let's take another one. Okay, next one comes in from Keith. By the way, that last question came from John. And uh, Craigslist article came from Candace. And the swell question came from Chris, if I didn't say that uh, when I originally did them. All right, so moving on to the next one. Dear Jack, uh, this is from Keith. Thank you for the show and all the hard work you put into it. Can you elaborate on the concept of building community? I've heard you confront some anti-community rhetoric here lately, and I agree with you. It did need to be confronted, but the opposite might be needed as well. How in the world do we as regular Joes begin to build community around ourselves, or should I say around the concepts of sustainability and survivability? Obviously, community is vital whether things get bad or not, yet some people, me included, just aren't that good at building relationships and community. I like the way it sounds when I think about doing it, but I don't really know where to begin. I would love to be part of a local group that was like-minded, or how. In, but how in the world does a person do that? Thanks for hearing me out, and thanks again for all you do at TSP. I'm going to give you the, the quick answer on what you're asking and the bigger answer on what you're not asking, which is a more important one. The quick answer on what you're asking about having like a local group of people that are like-minded is get people into events and meetings and groups that are around these ideas. 
So setting up a permaculture meetup group, setting up a group of guys that go to the rain. You can do all this through meetup, right? Uh, Marjorie Wallcraft did a great one on how to build just this, exactly this, on how to do it very low-key, setting up like using a local, uh, let's say a government rec center or something like that where you're allowed to set up a meeting or finding a, 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 a private uh, group that would rent out a, a room or something, and then just advertising through meetup and Craigslist, and local newspapers, whatever. Hey, we're doing a workshop on permaculture. We're going to watch a certain video. We're going to do a question and answer section. You know, even if you don't have an expert, well, you can bring in maybe the DVDs by Jeff Lott or something like that and do like a watching party, snacks, talking afterwards. There's a million ways to build communities of, you know, people. If you're interested in firearms, you're interested in self-defense. Right, almost 100% of the time. If you're interested in permaculture and gardening, you're interested in sustainability, and that you get this hodgepodge of people together, and some of them form better relationships than others, and that you let things go from there. And you don't try to put together a survival group or a survive, you know, a prepper group or something like that. You let that happen if it happens. You just build a group of people that are like-minded about certain things, not everything. That's number one. That's the easy one. Here's the harder one and the more important one. Walk outside your door, and every house that you can see, that's your community whether you want them or not. And if the shit hits the fan, that's who you're going to have. Period. End of story. The end. Goodbye. Go out. Unless you have a bug-out community to go to somewhere else, when the shit hits the fan in your town, those are the people you're going to have. The end. Done. So you got to start there. Now, does that mean you go out to all your neighbors and go, I think we need to have a neighborhood survival plan, and everybody needs to have these? No, because you're a dumbass if you do that, and most of the people in today's world are going to go, you're crazy, and that's going to be the opposite of what you want to happen. It starts out this way. Going, and whenever you see anybody outside their home in your street, and you're walking or taking a ride or whatever, go up to them and go, hey, I'm Tom. I live over here. What's your name? We moved in back. I've seen you a couple of times. Who are you? Hey, I got a couple of kids. Maybe you've seen them running around. You know, if you see them getting anything, let me know. Do you have kids? All right, that's it. Just a basic, hey, I live here too conversation. If you don't know everybody you can see from your front door, at least on a first name basis, you start there. If you start doing that, all of a sudden they'll they'll see you and wave. That's a big start. If people wave to each other, you're way ahead of the power curve. I've noticed in the country, everybody waves to each other. In the city, everybody looks at the ground. I don't want to be bothered by you. But as soon as you break that cocoon just by saying hello, it starts to go away. Hell, have a freaking barbecue for God's sake. Set up the grill in the backyard. Go out and buy a couple briskets. Smoke it up. Go out and tell everybody on your street, hey, Saturday afternoon, we're cooking at 4 o'clock. You'll smell it. It's going to be really good. Come on over and meet me and some of the neighbors. Half the people will ignore you. Half the people will show up. Focus on the people that freaking show up. If you just start knowing everybody, all of a sudden what will happen is you'll start having these things that we've lost the art of called conversations that will go beyond nice weather today we're having, isn't it, Tom? Yep, I might go play golf next week. You know, that, that kind of like typical suburban first world, I am the master of my domain and I live in my home and I drive to Audi. And I, you know, get past that. You'll start to have conversations about things like hunting and fishing or gardening. If you have a garden and people come over to have a barbecue and they see your garden, you know what they're going to say? Wow, you have a garden. What are you growing there? Let me go get you some stuff and give it to you. By the way, all that stuff you're eating there, all that, that pepper relish for the sausages or, or for the hot dogs or the bratwurst or whatever, that was all grown in the garden. All, you might find some of them going, I got one too, you should come see mine. Right? See, this is all that needs to be done to get the ball rolling. It's for freaking people to... Ooh, I just, I'm sorry I'm getting mad. I'm not mad at you. 
But, I mean, this is just how we've made something a problem that's only a problem because we all have our heads up our asses and we don't want to talk to each other. Just talk to each other. Don't try to have an agenda, right? Don't say, my goal is to get my neighborhood to have a group of people that are concerned with survival. Here's what will happen. You have a certain bent to you along the lines of preparedness and sustainability and looking out for your neighborhood. If you don't try to bring it up, if you let it be and just talk to people, you'll start to have people that you'll naturally become more than acquaintances with. You'll start to form friendships with. Form the friendship. With that, some of them will be people that will gravitate because there's much more acceptance of this today than there has been at any time I can remember in history, even back into the 70s when people were worried about World War III. The bigger thing that will happen is you'll have a group of people that you know if something needs to be done, if you need to deal with whatever's there, you'll be able to call them and they'll form, right? That doesn't even mean that you've agreed to it. Trust me, when you know ten good people in your neighborhood or five good people in your neighborhood and you're willing to step up and go, hey, man, we got a problem right now. We need to protect the block. We need... What's going to happen is all the people that aren't in on this are going to be shitting their pants and looking for someone to tell them what to do. When there's four or five people that are willing to stand up and say, this is how we're going to look after each other, the average person will fall in line and follow. This happens over and over and over again. The reason neighborhoods descend into chaos, whether rapidly or over time, is the leadership falls apart. When there's no community leader to stand up and say, you know what, we're not going to have this. We're not going to do this whether it's an acute problem that occurs because of a disaster or whether it's the downward spiral of a neighborhood into the abyss of slumdom, it's always the same problem. And it always starts when people stop talking to each other. So look at the urban farming guys in, in, uh, in, in, in St. Louis or East St. Louis, Kansas City, wherever they are, Missouri, somewhere. Okay, They move into this neighborhood. All they do is just start fixing up shit and putting out community gardens. All of a sudden, the crime rate drops by about a thousand percent. Why? Because people came outside of their freaking houses. And once they did that, they started talking to each other. And that changed everything. So the, there's two ways to go about this. One is from a pure kind of like-minded community group that's larger than your initial geographic area. And that's actually easy. Again, I'll put the link to the show with Marjorie Wallcraft in it. Tons of ideas there. Uh, go to go take go to IPC uh, and, and shoot IPC pistol. Uh, find other firearms competition things. Go there. Go take firearms training. Look for continuing education classes in your colleges around these subjects. Go there and meet people. I mean that, and they're going to be somewhat local, right? And and start developing relationships that way. But in the end, if it really comes down to it, and bad things happen, and you're going to have to have people that have each other's back, unless you've got an agreement and somewhere to go. You walk out your door and look, and that's who you're going to have with you. So start out with just knowing who they are and letting them know who you are. And I'll tell you what, you do that, and this is the reality. No military officer, unless he's in like some high-end special forces group, ends up being told, here's your men, you're going to war with them now, and goes, gee, everything's swell, I've got it great. Every, these guys all know what to do. No, every time that happens, a guy has to go in, and sometimes he has the bottom of the barrel. It's what you got. And he has to make them into what they need to be to survive what's coming. Now, you won't have a rank that requires salute. You'll have to earn respect through being a good citizen in your neighborhood. 
And that starts with, hi, my name is Tom, or in your case, hi, my name is Keith. That's it. It's that simple. And most people that you meet that live near you are just waiting for someone to do that, and they're scared to do it first. Just like little kids making friends on a playground. Really, it is. All you have to do is go first. You don't have to have an agenda. All you have to do is say, hi, my name is, my wife's name is, our kids are this, blah, 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 we live over there. You know, I just figured I needed to say hello. You know, and that way, two weeks later, you can go, hey, dude, um, we're having some stuff in the backyard right now. You want to come on over? Just, just be friends with people. Don't have the agenda. You'll find like-minded people, and that will take care of itself. This is what stops everybody. They're so worried about the agenda, they lose focus on just knowing people. Start with just knowing people. Let's take another one. This one comes from Sean. It says, hey, Jack, just wanted to keep you posted on what we're doing up here in the Great White North. I found a guy who has agreed to sell me IBCs that are food-grade safe for $35 Canadian. I just bought one from him, and we're going to attempt aquaponics. My wife and I are going back to listen to the two podcasts again, but do you have any suggestions on uh, online info? Thanks for all you do. Uh, your show and opinions have really helped make a difference uh, in our lives, uh, whether it be growing veggies in buckets or learning more natural ways to do things. Do you think this might be a good little side business if we were to make up kits and sell them to people and offer them a system that's basically ready to go? I get how people want to do something but are too lazy to do it for themselves a lot of the time, so maybe I can do it for them. Thanks so much for all you do, uh, Sean. Okay, great stuff there. The first thing I'm going to suggest that you do if you want to use IBCs to build an aquaponic system is order the DVD, uh, Murray Hallam's DIY Aquaponics. Uh, where he does just that. He builds a system specifically, uh, a full system using just two IBCs. So now you're at 70 bucks material cost for those, plus the fittings, valves, and things like that. And the reason I say this is he just takes away a lot of the problems. Yeah, the tanks have to be level, but they don't have to be level with each other. Uh, and it really, like, I looked at it when I, can do, I, like, I was like, I really don't feel like doing aquaponics. I don't think it's, I need to do it, whatever. And I looked at that and went, I want to build one now just because it looks so dead gone easy. Um, so I would recommend that DVD. I'll put a link to a couple different places where you can get it today. Um, but I think that it's probably the best DVD I know of for just what you're asking about. Um, as for doing it and offering the systems to others, I think the best thing you can do is build yourself a really great one first, learn everything about it, get it working, get it functioning, be able to show it to people. And I think that's your sales pitch. Oh, you want one? It's X. Well, how does it work? It works just like this. Like the one we already have. Well, what do I do with it? You take fish out of it, you eat them, you put new fish into it. Here's your maintenance. Um, it's just a little bit. Here's how you plant your plants. Here's how you take your plants out. When a plant is, you know, to a certain degree done and, and there's some leftovers, you can feed it to your fish this way. This is how it works. Well, what do I do? You pay me and I come set it up for you. I, I think that's the way to do it. And it's not just laziness. Let me tell you a big part of this. Do you know how many people want to do it and just don't really have the confidence that it's going to work? You're not just overcoming the laziness or the lack of time. You're also overcoming a confidence hurdle for people. Obviously, you know how to do it. There yours is right there. It's working. There's a, you put a net in and look at a fish flipping around. The big old head of lettuce growing. Okay, this, this person knows how to do it. You might screw some things up the first time. It might take you six months to get your system balanced out and understand all the little mistakes that are common. There's still going to be challenges here and there. But once you really get confident in it, then I think you could make a marketable product. 
And I think if you have a good source of low-cost IBCs, standardizing everything, the only thing that will change from one system to the next for you is how many and how long the, 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 the pipes and tubes are. That's the only thing that will change because a person might want it put in a certain area and you need to move one a foot to the left or a foot to the right. And I think that's a good way to do it. If you're going to do it with IBCs, understand the one thing you've got is you're going to limit yourself to people with, that are okay with how they look. But if you were to go out and find yourself someone that typically, like a handyman type that typically builds decks and stuff like that for a living, and say, all I want is this thing framed and then boarded in so it looks good, quote me a price per, you know, linear foot or whatever, you can throw that right in with your bid, and when you're done, he comes in and say, you know, it needs to be built so that certain panels can be removed and all, but there's no, there's no big hurdle there. And that could make it look better, that keeps light out, it's, it's probably not a bad thing anyway. And it would make people, it would be something that people could integrate into a deck system or something, so it would look beautiful. So that would be like the one tweak I would add. And it, it doesn't have to be, if you don't have that, you don't do it. It would be, we can do it this way, plain Jane, and, and you can make it look however you want to, or we can bring in our guy that takes care of boarding it in. And, you know, it would probably, if you want to do this as a serious business, it would probably be worth having that person do it for you first as the client and not just have them say, you know, I can do that, it's this much. And then you can say it can look like this or it can look like this. It's up to you. I think it's a great idea. And I think it's a tremendous opportunity. And I think it's something that more and more people are interested in. And I think it's something that people will tell the people. Will call, you, they'll do your advertising. You get 20 of these done, you'll have more business than you can handle. Because after you have 20 of them done, what do you think the first thing a person's going to do when they get it installed? They might not do a lot. But when they like it's all growing and they have shit everywhere and fish are swimming around and they're going to call their friend, their mother, their neighbor. Come look at it. Come look at it. How do I get one? Call this guy. I mean, it takes time. It's not going to be, you're not going to be an aquaponics mogul overnight. But I think you can make more money in this type of an operation and have more success and more sustainability than buying a big old giant greenhouse and setting up a commercial aquaponics operation selling food. I think it's, it's a better play for the small business person. And uh, it doesn't mean it can't ever lead to that commercial operation, but I think it's a better first step. Let's take another one. The okay, next one's a bit more somber, but it's going to point out part of why I'm always so big uh, on talking about things like aquaponics and gardening and feeding ourselves and all kinds of other stuff like that. It's, called, it's on the Economic Collapse blog, and the headline is Hungry for the Holidays, 20 Facts About Hunger in America That Will Blow Your Mind. I'm going to save the last one uh, in the list for the last one I'm going to talk about because it kind of really contrasts a lot of what the rest is you're about to hear. Number one, according to one calculation, the number of Americans on food stamps now exceeds the combined populations of Alaska, Arkansas, Delaware, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Maine, Mississippi, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Utah, Vermont, West Virginia, and Wyoming. That's not to say everybody in those states is on food stamps. It says when we take everybody from all the states and all the cities that are on food stamps and add up the population all those states, we get the same number. Or actually, we get a bigger number on food stamps than all those states. I want to point this out again. So I'm going to read the list again. I want you to think about what I'm saying here. I want you to really think, the number of Americans on food stamps now exceeds the combined populations 
of Alaska, Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, the District of Columbia, Hawaii, Idaho, Iowa, Kansas, Maine, Mississippi, Montana, Nebraska, Nevada, New Hampshire, New Mexico, North Dakota, Oklahoma, Oregon, Rhode Island, South Dakota, Utah, Vermont, West Virginia, and Wyoming. That's how many people in this country currently are unable to feed themselves without getting some money every month from the government. I'm not putting them people down. I'm telling you the problem we have. Uh, I'm skipping ahead here because uh, I don't want to read them all. Here's number five. According to new numbers that were just released by the U.S. Census Bureau, the number of Americans living in poverty increased to an all-time record high of 49.7 million a year. So we have 49.7 million Americans living at or below the poverty line. With a caveat of understanding a lot of the people in this country that are poor, that we would consider super poor, are wealthy by the standards of the rest of the world. And we need to understand that too. Uh, number 10. In the United States, close to 100 million Americans are considered either poor or near poor. So we have 49 million living as poor, but 100 million considered poor or near poor. That's a third of the population in the wealthiest nation on planet Earth. Um, number 14, according to the National Center for Children in Poverty, 36.4% of all children in Philadelphia are living in poverty. 40.1% of all children in Atlanta are living in poverty. 52.6% of all children in Cleveland are living in poverty. And 53.6% of all children in Detroit are living in poverty. How about this one? Number 17, there are 314 counties in the United States where at least 30% of children are facing food insecurity. A third of our children in 314 counties are not sure they're going to eat tomorrow is what this is saying. Number 18, more than 20 million U.S. children rely on school meal programs to keep from going hungry. Remember that lunch you used to bitch about at school? We have 20 million kids in America today that basically say, if we didn't have that, we'd be hungry every day. <sighs> I want to read the last one to you, because this is the one that tells us the problem isn't what we think the problem is. Right now, we think the problem is there ain't enough money, too many people are poor, we need more government, we need more charity, we need more common damn sense. Let me read the last one to you. According to the National Resources Defense Council, about 40% of all food in America is routinely thrown away by consumers at home, discarded or unserved at restaurants, or left unharvested on farms. 40% of the food in America is thrown away while people go hungry. Yeah, in the song it says, there's a better way to do this. Guess what there is? And that's what we need to focus on. Not throwing money at the problem. Throwing money at a problem with 40% waste in it will waste at least 40% of the money. In the best case, I mean, you're talking the best case scenario. I mean, you know it's a bigger number than that. But if there's 40% waste, period... The best you can expect in the perfectly run program that has an intrinsic 40% waste is a 60% efficiency. Let me put that into perspective for you. That means if we said we're going to go on a war on hunger, another war to go on, right? I think we already did this. But let's say war on hunger 2.0. And we're going to put $100 billion into the war on hunger this year. Hell, we'll take it away from bombs and missiles and stop. We'll blow up 100 billion less people this year and we'll put it into food. 40 billion is going to go to waste in the current system. So, 
When you asked me how do I you know, put solar into my home, what do I say? First, improve the efficiency of the energy that's already there. And then add solar. There's where we're at, folks. We need to improve the efficiency in this country of the food that's already here before we're worried about throwing more money at it. Because this funny thing that happens when you prove efficiency, money just kind of shows up. It really, I, know it, I know for people that think I'm crazy because I'm a libertarian, that's hard to accept. But I'm going to tell you that I've gone into business units and turned them around without a dime. Without a dime of money from the owner or from my own pocket when it was my own company or a company I had a piece of, I've gone in and improved the efficiency and money showed up. More customers, higher profits, get rid of dead weight. So what this tells me is in spite of all the dire facts that I read you, if we're throwing away 40% of our food and we can go in there and harvest half of what's being lost and thrown away and discarded, we can probably feed everybody. Maybe we should start there because it doesn't really require money. Maybe we need to look at some of our regulations that say when food needs to be thrown away and why that food can't be given to somebody else and how many places that's happening right now. We need to look at the way we're growing food. Why is food going unharvested? Really? Why is unharvested? That costs the farm because of subsidies, folks. Because subsidies make it possible for a farmer to leave food rot on a farm. Seriously. If there was no subsidy, that food wouldn't sit there and rot. On one other side of it, though, there is a place where it will. Farmers growing product that doesn't have sufficient market for delivery. So we have delivery side. There's so much work to be done here. It's not just about producing more. It's about producing more of what's really healthy and really good for our citizenry and making sure that it gets to them, not for free, but for a reasonable cost so that somebody can afford to work a dadgone job for a little over minimum wage and actually feed their family. You should be able to do that. And I'm not saying raise minimum wage so that you can. That's throwing money at the problem. I'm saying a person making 10 bucks an hour Especially if you have a, a husband and a wife. They each make $10 an hour. They have two kids. They should be able to feed, clothe, and house themselves. Don't write me and tell me they can't. I, I, I know it's hard. And I know in some places they can't. I get that. I'm not saying that they can or it's easy. I'm saying it should be possible. It should be doable. And they should be able to live a relatively old. That doesn't mean they have a plasma screen on every wall. That doesn't mean they have the big expanded cable package. That doesn't mean they have two new cars in the front yard. That doesn't mean they never struggle. But when it comes to putting food on the table in this country, that should be enough. And it wasn't that damn long ago that it was. When I moved to Texas out of the military, my first job, I made about six bucks an hour. I made six dollars an hour. I had an apartment. I was single. I split it with another guy. We had a two bedroom apartment that we split our apartment costs with. And you know what? I could go out to a bar once or twice a week and have a beer. I never went hungry. I never worried about whether I was going to feed myself. Not long after that, I moved up into the realm of making about 13 bucks an hour. And at 13 bucks an hour, I had a new truck. I had an apartment. Uh, I was able, and, and when I met my wife, I wasn't even making that much money. I really wasn't. I was probably pulling down about 16, working some overtime, things like that. And I was able to take care of my wife, provide for her, provide for our son, buy a new house. Folks, this is 15 years. That's all it is. We've, we've fallen that far from what a, what a decent income amounted to in 15 years. 
You go back to when my dad was 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 my age. You know, when my dad was 22, 23 years old, working construction for 10 bucks, 15 bucks an hour, somewhere in there, depending on how long he was there with overtime, and he made a salary then that's equivalent to what a good doctor makes today. This is this is what's eroded, and the lack of ability to provide security of food for our people. A food that's actually worth consuming. You know how many of these poor people that are on food stamps are so fat they need a freaking hover round to get their ass from point A to point B? You have a person that's below poverty that has type 2 diabetes directly, directly attributed to the food that this poor person is consuming while 40% of the food gets thrown away. Yeah. We got work to do ourselves. It's time to stop asking the government to do it. It's time to figure out how we can do this for ourselves. It's time to start educating people about proper nutrition. It's time to start educating people about how to grow food. It's time to take the waste out of the system. And I'm going to say this flat out. In some areas, it's time to tell the government to shove it up their ass and stop throwing food away because the government says you have to. It really is. It's time for people to start, start fighting the damn system. And let, let somebody come after you and go, okay, you know what? I'm going to rally about 200,000 people behind me because this is stupid. This person down the road's hungry while this food is being discarded. And we're going to figure out a way to get this food to this person. And if you don't like it, tough shit. You work for us, not, not we work for you. It takes guts to do that. It's not for everybody. But there's some people out there that want to be a warrior that way. There's a lot of ways to be a warrior. But I don't think of a more noble thing... That it, I don't think a more noble thing exists than being a warrior when it comes to improving the health, nutrition, and helping to feed your fellow Americans and not doing it in a way that does it for them so they can roll their ass around in a wheelchair and get a, 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 a handicap placard and live in a Section 8 apartment for $100 a month while they're on food stamps, while they're on government assistance, and then go look at poor me. I think there's ways to do this to empower people to get their ass up and start walking so they're not so damn fat, so they don't need to hover around, so they don't need to handicap placard, so they can feed themselves, so they can get their ass a job, so that we don't have to support them. Now, I ain't saying there's no one out there that needs help, no one out there that needs support, and I'm for the, 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 the complete removal of every single safety net. But we don't have safety nets anymore, folks. I talked about this before. You're, you're in a circus, you're flying around in a trapeze, they got a safety net under you. You fall, you don't splat onto the concrete floor, but you might break your damn arm. And you don't lay in the safety net for the rest of your life. You get your ass out of it and you get back up there, you go find something else to do. If you've been hurt bad enough, you can't fly from the trapeze anymore. That's a safety net. That's what we need to build. And we can start by eliminating the waste in the current system. 40%, we should all be damned ashamed over it. We really should. We're better than this. Let's do something about it. I bet there's a hundred skills goals with 13 skills that can come back around to helping to fix this problem. Let's go ahead and take one more. All right, one more. This is an interesting one here. Um, here we go. Uh, I recently visited Brazil and found a lot of houses in Sao Paulo, or Sao Paulo have what they refer to as water boxes. They get thousand liter or more boxes, install them in the roofs of their houses. They remain full at all times. They claim this was because the city water was unreliable. My question is, does something like this exist in the U.S., and what kind of adjustments to plumbing would this require? I think it might be a better alternative to just having several gallons of water in your preps. As a family I was staying with said it would take several days of no city water before they had to adjust their usage. Uh, Aaron from Amarillo. Okay, uh, does it exist? It exists where everybody, anybody installs one. 
Uh, and I, I don't know, maybe there's some places where you'd come up with some kind of government regulations against it, but basically my understanding of water that you buy from a city or a county or a co-op is your water and you do with it as you see fit, unless there's restrictions on its use. So if you want to buy a thousand gallons of it in advance or a thousand liters, like get about 500 gallons of it in advance, uh, and then use it as you see fit and top it off from there, I don't see it being a problem. It, it simply works like this. The water comes to your place under pressure. And that means you can lift it pretty daggone high. Once you lift it, taking it out, it provides its own pressure due to gravity. And you can get quite a bit of pressure from just a few feet of head or the number of feet above where you let the water out. So if you have a two-story house and you have water in a, in a tank, uh, let's say in your attic, and then you drain water down into, it comes back down into your main water feed. So basically what you're doing is you're taking the water that comes into your house You're diverting it up to uh, a pressure tank. You're bringing it back down to where you disconnected it and reconnecting it from the other side. You're putting the tank in between the connection. While the pressure's on, your pressure's pretty uniform. Because as the water's being drawn, you have continuous pressure coming in. So the tank has to be able to handle that pressure. Uh, but it doesn't have to handle it all the time. Because what you can do is you can set it basically with a float valve that once the tank's full, the pressure stops. So you're either feeding it through uh, or you're just sitting there static. So it ain't like it's got to be a super high-pressure tank or anything like that. Um, and then if you then lose your feed of water from the city, whatever amount of water you have can gravity feed back down. That's one way to do it. Another way to do it would be to have a bypass valve where you can fill up your reserve tank And once it's full, shut it off and then run off normal water and then you can change it anytime you want and run off either side. That way, if maybe you have an upstairs bathroom, um, you maybe get lower pressure up there than you do in a downstairs bathroom or at your kitchen sink. If you have enough plumbing experience, you could even tie in certain portions of the house to always run off of one and always run off the other. It's up to you. But there, it's something that doesn't exist in the United States. Not a lot. And I'll tell you why it doesn't exist a lot. Because our water's really, really reliable. And this is the problem with highly reliable systems. The, 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 the misery when they fail is much enhanced. Because there's such an expectation that every time I turn that faucet, the water's going to come on. And it's going to be clean. And it's going to be healthy. And I ain't going to have to boil it. That no redundancies are planned for. And if it's an inconvenience, it'll be a couple days and I can buy some bottled water and, and it'll be fine. Where you will see it in America in various forms, is in places where people rely on springs and wells to get their water. Because they know that either one can fail due to pump issues and things like that. So what a lot of people will do maybe is put in a water tank up on a hill, pump their water from their well up to the tank, and then run the water from the tank down to the house. That way if the pump burns out or you lose power or whatever, you have as many gallons of water up there as you can want. And on a, you know, a farm or something like that, that tank, you know, when you want to run water for quite a while, might be 10,000 gallons or more. And, and that's another way to do it. So it's all it is, is and it, there's a million ways to do it. You can build a water tower. You can do this with rain catch as well. Um, I've seen it. Though, I plan on doing it with rain catch. And I'm going to dovetail another question into this one that I had this week, and it was, is it safe to drink water from comp composition roofs, from shingled roofs? Is it safe to use it for gardening, aquaponics, and things like that? 
Gardening, no problem. Aquaponics, maybe, probably should go through some sort of a, a filtering process. Drinking, again, a filtering process. It's less than ideal if you have a choice. Okay, I just discussed this with Jeff Lawton. Uh, we have uh, on our new place a pretty big composition roof and a pretty big metal roof over the garage. And he said that water off that metal roof with first flush is immediately drinkable. You don't have to really worry about it at all. So we can develop rain catchment, pressure tanks, etc. off that roof water to feed the house and reduce our requirements on the well that we're going to have there. And the water in that area has a lot of iron in it, so that reduces labor, uh, the, the, the work that the water softener has to do for every bit of rainwater we use, plus creates an additional redundancy, so we're going to do that. Off of the composition roof, I've seen it done in a lot of places. I've seen it work, but if you had a choice, if you had two roofs, I'd go with the metal roof. With the composition roof, what you want to definitely do is a first flush. So that means it may be the first, and this is not the whole roof. This is per catchment. So if you had four downspouts you're catching from, to each downspout that you're catching from, maybe 50 gallons of water fills up a container, and then that container tips and dumps that water into the, you know, down onto the ground through the, the downspout a different way. And lets that go off, and then all the additional water goes into your catchment. This gets all, and that's it's a good idea for metal roofs too. All the crap that's up on the roof when it hasn't rained for two months, bird crap, mouse crap, just dust, dirt, whatever, gets rid of that in the first flush. Um, so you can do exactly what you're saying with your water coming from the grid, and you can do that with. Um, let's say your water from rain catchment. Here's a simple way to do it. Let's say you water your garden every day and you want to store 200 gallons of water on demand um, and you want it constantly rotated, constantly kept fresh, and, and that's what you want. You get yourself four 50-gallon blue water drums and you plumb them together so that they're all interconnected. You bring your garden hose in one side, your garden hose out the other side. Okay. Every time you water your garden, you turn it on, you push the water through the four tanks, and out the garden hose, you'll have no loss in pressure. It's going to work out and equalize the same once they're full. Every time you water, every time you wash your car, every time you do anything, if you're pulling from that water in those four drums, you're rotating your water and keeping it nice and fresh. Okay? <laughs> whenever you need, whenever your water gets cut off, you have a drain at the bottom of, of one of the tanks. They'll all drain equally if they're plumbed together, as long as they're plumbed across the bottom. You'll have some level of pressure. If you build them up onto some type of a platform, give yourself about two feet of rise on a platform to set them on, you get plenty of pressure to do basic things with your water. So this can be large scale, 5,000 gallons in a couple, you know, 2,500 gallon tanks. This can be small scale. This can be mid scale. This can be small, you know, tiny scale. This can be any way you want. But the basic premise is simple. Elevate water and you get pressure anywhere that's lower than where that water is. It's really simple. And yeah, all over the developing world, different forms of this are practiced. And here in America, where we can go down to Home Depot or Lowe's and buy everything we need for a few bucks, including, you know, you can get a 2,500-gallon water tank black so that it doesn't get nasty from the sun rays from tractor supply for about 1,700 bucks. That's a lot of water security. That is a ton of water security. Um, would you put that in an attic? Hell no. Too much weight. Way too much weight. But there's a lot of ways to do this. And the big thing to remember about water, if I have 10 containers and they're all level and they're all plumbed together, they'll rise and fall like a single container. So I can distribute it 
if I wanted to put it in an attic. I don't really, and it sounds like that's what these people in Brazil are doing. I'd rather be up on the roof or on some thing outside, but you certainly could do it in an attic. I just would be really, really careful about wear, reinforcement, weight, leakage, have some sort of diverter system where if, because here's the thing, if I plumb 10 100-gallon containers together, I've got a thousand gallons acting like one container, I can distribute that all over the place so the weight is distributed and safe. But if I get a hole in one of them, they all drain and all thousand gallons comes out. So you better have some type of a catchment system that if one of those things gets punctured or ruptures in some way, that 100% of that water gets diverted somewhere safe, not to your ceiling. So I've never even thought about doing it that way. But here's an interesting thing. If you did, talk about operational security, no one would be able to identify it. So it's a thought Just not certainly, definitely something I would do. I don't know. I mean, I'd have to see it. I'd have to have somebody smarter than me set it up, but it's an idea. All right, with that, we had some great questions today. We didn't get too much into the dire current events stuff. I try to stay away from that uh, this week. I'll try to do that once in a while for you instead of making every Monday show, you know, Newsday Monday and having it all be glum stuff. Uh, a little bit of it there because it's real and we have to look at it once in a while. Uh, but this is a great Uh, feedback show, please keep the stuff coming. Remember, question for Jack, comment for Jack, video for Jack, story for Jack, etc. That's the way to put your subject line. Send that to Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Remember, 13skills.com is live. Uh, Dorothy, uh, who is known as Skill Girl, is working really hard to get people approved quickly and all. Uh, so once your account's submitted, we'll try to get you approved as fast as possible. Try to help me out with everything I said about trying to find a skill set that you can put your goal under that's already there or when you're suggesting one. Try to keep it two words or less. If you do that, you'll either find that you can make it really inclusive for a lot of other people to do a lot of other projects or there's probably something already there you can use. We've gotten pretty good with it. We still want your suggestions on new skill sets to add. We still want your suggestions on features. Just understand it's going to take some time. But let's rock it, guys, man. Let's not be doing this stuff like I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to check it off in five minutes. Let's make ourselves stretch. Let's put some work and some effort into it, and we'll try to make that site even better for you guys. Again, 13skills.com. Check it out today. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Nobody up there cares They're living for today Yeah.